This podcast is a production of the Community Covenant Church in Eagle River, Alaska, a place where real people meet a real God to live in a real world. For more information, visit our website at www.communitycovenant.net. Again, the scripture for this morning is from Luke, chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the bier they were carrying him on, and the bearers stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. Whenever I preach, I, maybe I should move over here, and they'll stand this way. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, it's not you, it's me. Um, I'm Chris. I'm the middle school coordinator here, um, so I'm happy to share with you guys today. Um, you guys mind praying with me for a moment? Holy Father God, um, we thank you for a chance to get together to proclaim your word we ask that we be faithful hearers uh, to what you're speaking to our lives, um, that we hold on to the life that you offer us. Um, and we pray for Todd and Lori um, and all of Lori's family as they uh, deal with this funeral down in California. In your name, amen. Okay. Uh, and the youth, there's a tradition here that I am still not used to. Um, where we say, you know, all God's people say at the end of our prayers, and then everybody claps their hands, and uh, I always forget. And the youth always give me a hard time about that. So uh, I just wanted to clarify. I should have done that. Sorry, youth, again. <laughs> um, so, uh, well, we read the passage, the Luke scripture, um, and it's about life, about God giving life to his people. Um, once... I think I feel like I always kind of start off with the story. Um, uh, once I was visiting this homeless shelter. Um, now, I've, I've spent a lot of time in um, homeless shelters and uh, working with homeless. Uh, I've, I've served in kitchens and worked in social service programs where we, we dealt with the homeless. And uh, um, once I was traveling um, across the country and through a series of unfortunate events, um, I was on my way to a conference um, and really bad lack of planning. I ended up having to stay in a homeless shelter in Chicago for a while. Um, until the conference started, um, so uh, which was an eye-opening experience. But uh, this was different. This time I was going um, as an education. This was a, as part of a class. I was, I was talking to the director, and um, he said something that stuck with me. Um, he said, people aren't homeless because they've lost their homes, right? People lose their homes all the time. People are homeless because they've lost their relationships, right? So... 
And what he meant was that most people that we see, you know, those people on the corners or that um, are in shelters, are men and women that have no relationships that they can turn to in times of trouble. Um, because most of us have support networks, you know, um, friendships, parents, families that we can turn to when disaster strikes. Right? If we lose our jobs, we can call somebody. Um, we might get a referral. Um, we might have somebody pray for us, and then you know, it might go on a prayer chain, and somebody might think, hey, I might be able to help. It doesn't always happen, but it's really good when it does. Um, or if things are desperate or really hard, you know, we can call families. Uh, we might be able to stay with some friends for a while. Um, before I well, went away to seminary, I know we put our house up for rent, and we pitched a tent in my friend's backyard for about six weeks with a 10-month-old and airport heights, and uh, that is a babe, crying baby in the neighborhood at midnight is, it's, it's, I don't know, people, neighbors weren't as happy, but uh, we figured that out. So, um, but homeless people, right, people that are homeless that have lost their homes, um, they've lost that safety net. Now, it could be through alcohol or drugs or mental illness, or it could be through a series of bad decisions and poor priorities. It could be just repeated bad luck. But because things happen over and over again, right, relationships get stretched and stretched and stretched to the point where they're broken. And so people get burned in those relationships. People get hurt. And they, they may be unable to or they don't know how to form new relationships. Um, and the director um, of that program, he said that, you know, we can feed them, we can house them. And we have great programs to do that. That's, that's, that's a good thing. But that's not their problem. Until they learn how to be in real, life-giving, positive relationships with people, all this is just a Band-Aid. And it's a necessary Band-Aid because you, you need to put something over it, but that's not going to fix the problem. Um, now, taking this back to Scripture, um, to Jesus' encounter with this woman. Now, here's this woman is somebody that's only described by her relationships, right? If you notice um, in the passage, she wasn't even called a woman. Um, she wasn't given a name. Um, so the only things we know about her is that she has a couple of serious broken relationships, the loss of her son and the loss of her husband. We're not told a name. We're just told that once she used to be a mother, she used to be a wife, and now she's not. It's the absence of those things that define her. Um, by letting us know that she's a widow, uh, the author of Luke, he's telling us something about her class, who she is in society. Because uh, widows in those days were counted among the poorest of the poor. right? If she had any other family, any other relationships, she wouldn't be called a widow. She'd be called somebody's sister, somebody's daughter, somebody's mother, somebody's cousin. That's how we'd know her. But she doesn't have that. She has no one. She's a widow. And in that society, and in almost every society, widows suffer. They have it hard. Uh, scripture often lumps widows together with orphans and immigrants, right? Other people that have no relatives or no families that are kind of out of their place. Um, and God has to remind Israel to take care of those widows and orphans and foreigners because the people there don't really think about them at all unless, you know, it's a problem. These aren't, they're not the ones coming around to dinner because we're not in a relationship, right? They're invisible. They're on the margins. They're scavenging off this, 
you know, societies, the leftovers, right? You pick the fields, but you don't really pick all of it so that there's somebody can come along and they at least have something. Now, as a widow, she probably had one hope, right? So she had one dream. You know, one thing that kind of made her suffering, like, bearable, and that's a son. And having son in ancient times is, like, it's very special significance. It carries on your lineage. It carries on an inheritance. Um, and despite her poverty, she could say she was a mother, so she had a future. So sons were also seen as a form of wealth because there was no Social Security or retirement plans, um, and you know, who knows if that will keep on going. But, uh, there, um, but there's no other way to ensure your survival in your old age, right? You invested in your children so your children could take care of you. So despite her status, her hardship, in her son she had a future, someone to care for and to love, and someone to love her, to care for her as she grew old. And there's also a spiritual significance, right? This is Israel, right? The children of God, you know, Abraham's descendants. And so having a children meant you're carrying on that promise, God's special promise to the world, right? That Israel is called to be a chosen people in this world to bless everyone. But if you don't have a child, you're kind of cut off of that. Um, the social implications and the spiritual implications that, um, that Luke is telling us is that this woman has no hope. She has nothing. She has no future. She has no relationships. She's broken. And Jesus saw that. He looked at this woman, and he did something amazing. He saw her, and he felt her pain. His heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. Now, when I'm put in uncomfortable situations with crying people, sometimes I say that. Don't cry, don't cry. And, uh, you know, because my heart goes out, and I don't know what to say. Um, so I just say something stupid like, don't cry. Um, and really what I'm saying is, uh, forget about it, it's not important. Uh, or uh, you're really making too big of a deal of this. Or sometimes it's just, you're making me really, really uncomfortable, and I don't know what to do to help you, so please pretend you're okay so I can feel okay. <laughs> right? That's what I say. When I say don't cry, that, that's what I'm saying. Uh, but this is the death of a child, right? Is there anything more appropriate than to cry? It's a time to mourn. But when Jesus said don't cry, he's saying something different isn't he? He means something more than what I say when I say don't cry. I mean, because he's God. He's the firstborn of all creation, the visible image of the invisible God. And so when he says don't cry, it's God telling this woman, don't cry. And when God says don't cry, he's not just saying, stop it, I'm uncomfortable. He's saying that there's no longer a reason for tears. He's saying, I'm here. He's saying, I haven't forgotten you. And he's establishing a relationship with her. It's God doing something. It's God reaching out God's hand. And what the hand does is it touches the coffin that the dead son is lying in. Now, um, in the scripture, right, it says that the whole funeral procession stops. Everything stops. 
the people are shocked because that's not something you do. Because what they see, they don't see God touching a coffin. They see a guy. They see a man walking up to a funeral, which you know, might be a little odd because they're marching through town. Um, they see this guy walking through the funeral, and this guy has a crowd following him, right? He has the disciples and other people. He just gave the Sermon on the Mount, and he just healed uh, um, the centurion's servant. And so he's somewhat of an important man, it looks like, and he's touching a coffin. And that's scandalous. That's shocking. Because a coffin holds a dead body. And a dead body means that's unclean. It means it's dirty. And in Israel, things were divided between clean things and dirty things, right? Unclean things. And clean things are things that are good. They're things that point to who God is and how God relates to his people. By being clean, they, they, they were a form of worship. They showed us what it's like to worship God, who God is, how do we relate to him. That's what being clean meant. Um, and that's one of the reasons why there's so many rules in Israel. You read through the Bible, right? You go through Leviticus, Deuteronomy. Um, there's all these rules. And that's because everything in their culture is designed to point to who God is, to be useful in worship. So when you read through those, you don't think like, gosh, they have a lot of rules. This is awful. Um, what you should see is that they have all these ways of making sure that everything in their society is pointing to who God is. Right? I mean, there's a reason. It's not like, because one of the reasons why is only plant your field with one kind of seed. Don't use two seeds. Right? Because God's one. You just want to be reminded of that. Whenever you look out in the field, you want to know that there's only one God. Um, so, or, you know, if you get a new field, right, don't eat the fruit of the tree until four years later, right? Because you want to make sure that everything's good and everything's healthy because God's a God of health. So all these things say something about who God is and how we're supposed to relate to him because that's what clean things are supposed to do. They're supposed to instruct our faith, how we live, how are we supposed to work in this world, how are we supposed to be. Um, now, one of the things about being unclean is that it could make something that was clean dirty. Um, some of you might remember uh, this example from, uh, from youth group. This was told a lot when I was in youth group, right? The, the drop of sewage in a clean jar of glass of water. You guys, anybody heard that, right? That clean glass of water is no longer clean. It's, it's filthy. It's sewage water. And now you could even take a drop of that glass of water and put it into another glass of water, and that other glass of water is dirty. That's... That's the way unclean works. Um, maybe a more pertinent example, an example that I've lived through many times, is um, jam hands. Uh, like, so I have, have children, and they are, always have jam, even when they don't have jam. I don't know how it works. But, uh, so, and those kids with their sticky hands, they touch the couch, because that's just what they do. <laughs> and they touch it, and they touch it, and they touch it. And then you sit on it. And then you have jam on your pants. And you don't know you have jam on your pants until you, like, you know, you're going to bed or whatever, and you, you, you sit down on your bed, and you're taking off your socks or whatever. And then your bed has jam in it. And then you, you get in the bed, and you're like, oh, everything is sticky. This is awful. What happened? Um, that's the way unclean things are like, right? They spread around. They contaminate everything. And so people became so worried about um, these guidelines. They, they became so worried about being clean 
they forgot the whole purpose was not just to be clean in and of itself, but all this cleanliness is supposed to point to who God is and who, what God's character is like. Now, one of the most unclean things are dead things. Uh, when you read through, like dead bodies, um, especially dead people, they're very unclean because they're not, the dead aren't holy. They can't worship God. Death doesn't point to God. It doesn't point to life. It's the opposite of life. And God is the God of the living, not the dead. So the dead were considered extremely, extremely unclean. Death points away from who God is, what God wants, and how God desires to be in this world. And that, that's even why there's a funeral procession, right? Because th- I, I just said this was an unpo- unimportant person. Um, but in the funeral, there, there's a whole procession. There's a whole bunch of people going to the funeral. And that's just so that they can make sure, because funerals were a big deal, because they wanted to make sure that that dead body is out of the town so that everybody in the town isn't clean. And so for Jesus to touch that coffin, the coffin of a dead man, it's scandalous. It's an act of defiance against God. That's what people see when they see somebody just touching that. They see somebody purposefully making themselves unclean, right? I mean, if you have to carry a body out to, to help protect everybody else, you know, that's kind of noble. You're, you're, you're taking a hit for the team, and you'll go through all the rituals. But Jesus is doing it on purpose. He's just making himself unclean. He's touching that thing. And everyone's shocked. The whole procession stops. The people are aghast. This is like blasphemy, right? It's a man choosing to be unclean. A man choosing not to be in relationship with God. But the people didn't know. They got it wrong. They mixed it up. Because they thought that God would run, runs away from unclean things. They thought that God couldn't stand to be in the presence of sin, of filth, and of clean, right? That, that's, that's something that, we, that we, 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 kind of, we kind of mix things up sometimes. I think we think that a lot, that, oh, I can't come to God. I'm dirty. I'm sinful. I'm unclean. So we think that. And so we think that, oh, we're unclean. God, God stays away from us, and we've got to get clean, and then we can go to God. But they're wrong, because God never desires to be apart from his people. Being lost, being unclean, being sinful, it doesn't chase away God. It's sin that runs away from God. Jesus is God in human skin, and death, uncleanliness, sin, it runs away from that. Isaiah 59.2 says, But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you, so he will not hear you. Right? It's not God separated himself from, from us. It's we've separated ourselves from him because of our sin. sin. God doesn't separate himself from us. Sin separates us from him. But Jesus is Emmanuel. He's God with us. He comes after us. He looks upon us with compassion. He gives new life. He drives out sin. The woman, the widow, the mother, she's given back her son. She's given a son. Alive, breathing, talking, 
she's given future. She's given a new hope, a new chance, because that's what God does, right? Jesus, the visible image of the invisible God, he takes unclean things and he makes them clean. That body, the dead body, that didn't point to God. But now it's alive. It's clean. It can point to God. It can speak. And the people were in awe. Uh, They didn't get that Jesus was the Son of God. They knew that God was doing something because only Elijah and Elisha, um, Israel's two greatest prophets, have ever risen somebody from the dead. So, but they, they still didn't quite know what it meant. And uh, sometimes I think we still wonder, like, okay, God, God can do these things. So what does it mean? It means that the same God that looks at the mother, the widow, the brokenhearted, the hopeless, the futureless, looks at us. He sees us. Um, one of the things that I've been doing re- recently, um, well, for the past, I think it's been about six weeks, um, is... Uh, Spending about a half an hour, maybe an hour, depending on how long it takes, um, reading the prayer wall. You guys know the prayer wall? It's right out here. It's where people kind of put their uh, things that they have on their heart, their prayer requests. And uh, if you haven't spent any time out there, you, you should. Um, it's kind of heartbreaking. There's stories of brokenness, of addiction, of illness, of death, of loneliness, of failure. And of hope, hopes, dreams, and that's our church. Now, taking a look around you, um, especially so the early morning folk, you guys look very, very nice, pretty spiffy bunch. Um, I'm starting to get to know you guys a little bit more because I've been coming to for service a little more over the summer. Um, we look good, but uh, things like that prayer wall is an attempt to make something that's invisible, visible. That we, our church, are people desperately in need of God. That we want Jesus to see us just like he saw that widow. And we want Jesus to say to us, don't cry and get up. We know that things are dead. We all have things that are dead, right? And we all need some resurrection in our lives. Daily, we need resurrection in our lives. We need resurrection in our families, in our marriages, in our relationships with our children, in our relationships with our parents, um, resurrection in our church, right? in our community, our country. We need the Lord. Because by ourselves, apart, we're unclean. We're lost. But that God searches for us. He looks for us. God, that relationship, we have a relationship with God. And that relationship's not lost, at least not on his part. We might be driving ourselves away, but he's out looking for us. Sin makes us hide from God. But from the beginning of all creation, when the first man and the first woman were hiding from God in sin and shame, God was calling their names. God was out looking for them. And even when we hide in shame, God is out looking for us. Um, now, I, I do want to be clear um, about something, because there is heartbreak in life. There's tragedy. 
there's death. Um, we've all had dreams or hopes, like things that we wanted to happen that didn't happen. Um, we do all we can. We work really hard, and things sometimes don't work out. Things end. Um, and there, there's a section on the prayer wall of answered prayers, and that's really encouraging and good to look at. Um, it's, it's awesome to see what God can do. But there's a whole bunch of prayers, right, that we still don't know the answers to yet. Um, we have tragedy. Because, um, you know, just like that widow did. Jesus, God, didn't cause the widow's son to die. This is a fallen world. A world that's moving away from God. That cries out for God to redeem it. But Jesus is in that world, right? He's come to this world. His heart goes out to us. And our faith is in resurrection. It is in new life. Not a second chance at the old life. Not a fixed life. Not a repaired life. But a new life. Right? So we need new relationships. So even in our current relationships, daily, I need new relationship with my wife. Right? I can't coast on that old relationship. It's not going to get me anywhere. So... We need to move from death to life, from unclean to clean, from being useless to useful to point to God, because Jesus is in life. Um, this is Communion Sunday, so I want to talk a little bit about communion before we move on that way. Um, so let's think about communion. This is where Jesus instructs his disciples to eat bread and drink wine in remembrance of who he is of his broken body and his shed blood. We are symbolically eating a body and drinking blood. That is unclean. This would, was abhorrent to the first century, like everybody in the first centuries, right? Christians were called cannibals when other people heard about our customs. They thought we were a death cult. But they only thought of Jesus as a man, dead, unclean. They didn't know a risen Christ. They didn't see a living God. They didn't believe in a resurrection. But we can. And when we eat bread, and when we drink the wine, we are defying death. We're saying there is life in Jesus. He is all we need. He is my food. He is my drink. He is what gives me life. We're saying I was unclean. I was far from God. I was hiding. But God has found me. He sees me. And now I'm made clean. Um, worship team, I think you guys can come forward. Uh, we're going to prepare our hearts for communion. Uh, there are communion stations around the sanctuary. There's a couple in the back there and over here and over here. Um, and come forward as you feel led. And uh, eat the bread. But hold on to the juice. And we're going to take that together as a sign of unity in his body. Um, I want to close uh, perfectly reading the scripture, and then uh, I guess we'll just start communion. Sorry, I haven't done this part yet. Um, this is John chapter 5, starting at verse 53. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, 
and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Amen.